Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. This week's OIS Podcast is brought to you by Shire. Shire is the leading global biotechnology company that's focusing on serving people with rare diseases and other highly specialized conditions like ophthalmology. Thanks, Shire, for sponsoring the OIS podcast. This week's podcast guest is Paul Cheney, the president and CEO of Panoptica. Last week, Panoptica announced that it raised $11 million in an extension of its Series B. So I talked with Paul about uh, the company's plans for the $11 million. We talked a lot, actually, about his uh, his finding his way into ophthalmology, his work at iTech, and uh, and what drew him to uh, to co-found Panoptica. It's a it's a great story. I think a, a great a, a great example for anyone who is looking to uh, enter the the entrepreneurial world and to start up a company of their own. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Paul Cheney of Panoptica. Before I let you go, though, don't forget to register for OIS at AAO. It's coming up on November 9th in New Orleans. Go to OIS.net, sign up right away. Now let's get into this conversation with Paul Cheney. Paul Cheney, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Tom. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Great to have you here. I know Panoptica had some some positive news on the fundraising front recently, and uh, that's why I reached out to you. I want to find out a bit more what your plans are. But uh, before we get into that, I always kind of like to find out a bit more about the guests on a personal level, specifically how you found your way into ophthalmology. You've been uh, in this field for, for quite a while. Um, how did you first uh, become involved? <laughs> well, uh, I first became involved in some ways in a very serendipitous way. Um, I was at John Company, and uh, if you remember back Oh, in about 1994 or 95, we had merged with a company called Pharmacia, which was a largely European-centered organization. Uh, they had a legacy ophthalmology business. Oh. I was in the U.S. at Upjohn in Michigan, and uh, they were looking for someone to lead um, and integrate this new ophthalmology business, which was not part of what Upjohn did. And I was told we had a new product to launch, and it was a prostaglandin agent for the treatment of glaucoma called Zalatan. And uh, I got tapped to take that job with a launch that... <laughs> Did you miss a meeting or something? About, <laughs> yeah, I must have. <laughs> no, I actually had done some work. I had done some work for, for the company on product launches. And I think as a result of that, uh, they saw me as having kind of gone through a best practice study and exercise. And um, they said, you know, would you be willing to take this on? And so we launched the product eight months after really I got into the business. Wow. Um, and we managed to integrate, uh, you know, a number of the people from the legacy pharmacia and then put them together with uh, an experienced Upjohn company sales and marketing management team. And, uh, you know, off we were to the races with one of the real, I think, amazing stories in, in sort of changing the paradigm for, for glaucoma treatment. And I'd love to take credit for all of that, but there are a hell of a lot more people than me that were involved <laughs> in it. And secondly, is I kind of stepped into it uh, in some ways, uh, by happenstance, I'm not even sure the company knew what it had at the time. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very pleased and proud of What was your feeling uh, or your take on ophthalmology when you first, uh, when you first entered the field? Was it, uh, was it like other, was it familiar to other specialties where you had worked or, or did you find it unique 
from what uh, from other areas where you've done business? Listen, you know, I had chances to move outside of the field, but I have to say I, I really appreciate the way in which the ophthalmology community and industry collaborate and partner in order to advance um, the treatment of patients. I, I think that's become very difficult and frequent and less likely to occur in mm-hmm. many other fields. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it really does give everyone, sort of empowers everyone to have an influence over what's new and what's next. And, um, you know, I, I, I like that because um, I think we all really have a sense that we have a chance to actually make a difference for people. And that's really what I think after a while, when you've been doing this as long as I have, that's the thing that drives you more than anything else is, is you want to know that what you're doing matters. Um, and, and you get to know patients and practices, I think, in a very intimate way. And I, and I really, I really like that. And I don't really feel like I want to get back into, you know, into bigger, less specialized uh, areas because I just think it's harder to get that kind of experience. I imagine, yeah, the feedback is, is immediate and clear. Um, and it, and the spirit you're talking about is exactly why I think OIS is as successful as it is. It, uh, it really is a, a, a celebration yep. of that kind of spirit. Uh, so where did you, where did you go from there? Yeah. So that was my first foray into it. Um, if you remember in around 2002, 2003, um, we were, were merged or, or probably more accurately acquired by Pfizer. Uh, and Pfizer had their own kind of designs on how they wanted to run that business. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we made a, a mutual kind of agreement that we would go separate ways. And it just so happened I got a call from Dr. David Geyer, who was looking for a chief operating officer at the time. Um, and and as, as it also so happens, we at, at Pharmacia had done a lot of work on anti-VEGF target and had, had done some work on, you know, potential partnerships and business development collaborations with uh, both Genentech and iTech actually in uh, the development mode at that time. And, uh, you know, I accepted that job in 2003 before the IPO and before the phase three data. And, you know, I, I stepped into, into, <laughs> into gold there as well. I mean, yeah. it, was a, it was a amazing experience having helped to build that company, those friendships, partnerships, and you know, professional um, collaborators are all over the place, including, you know, Emmett Cunningham, who's been a major part of growing uh, OIS and, sure. you know, conceptualizing that. And uh, so that was, that was my experience until then. And then um, later after we were acquired by, uh, OSI. Um, I stayed on and, and, and was the president of OSI iTech, subsidiary of um, OSI, uh, focused on the ophthalmology business. And then, you know, we ended up winding that business down after the success of Bucentis. And congrats to, to Genentech for providing an additional advance in the treatment of wet AMD. Mm-hmm. And then I went on to, uh, I decided that I really wanted to do something on my own. And so that was the, that was the genesis behind uh, Panoptica. That was my my next question. So this is Panoptica was yeah. sort of your first. I mean, iTech was obviously privately held in, in startup ish, but when you joined it, I think yeah. I think the train was already on the tracks. Right. Is Panoptica yep. was this your first? What was it? What was Panoptica when you came to it, and what did you find appealing about this opportunity? Well, you know, it, it didn't exist really, um, but um, at the time, SV Life Sciences, now they're called SV Health Investors, uh, had been a co-founding investor in uh, in iTech. Sure. And uh, Dave, Dave Geyer was a venture partner there, um, and you know, a number of their managing directors were certainly familiar with me and and familiar with the space, and they had asked me if I would consider. Actually, they wanted 
me to consider seeing if we could start a glaucoma business. Um, and, and I basically said, I, I think we could potentially find something in glaucoma. I think it's a challenging space. It's crowded. It's pretty well served right now. And I would like to actually look if we could license some compounds against targets that had been validated in ophthalmology, but for which there were molecules out there against those targets that were in companies that didn't have experience or designs on mm -hmm. ophthalmology. And so um, that was when I uh, approached my founding partner, Dr. Dr. Marty Wax, who had recently come out of Alcon. He was the head of discovery and preclinical development at Alcon. Uh, and I had known him since my glaucoma days. He was a, he's a glaucoma specialist and a, and a molecular pharmacologist uh, at Wash U at the time. He was the head of my scientific advisory board. <laughs> And I said, Marty, we want to do something different. And so we sat down and put a business plan together with a number of target profiles for compounds, targets, and diseases in ophthalmology that we thought were underserved. And then we went out uh, with some seed money from SV Life Sciences, we went and did our pitch, and we identified a number of potential candidates, and we did some preclinical work on them. And the first of those was what is now called PAN-06. And um, which was, you know, our target profile was, could we find a topical anti-VEGF agent that actually would access the eye at the level of the central retina, central choroid, have therapeutic effect with a good dosing frequency that was not burdensome to patients that could augment, supplement, particularly in the chronic management portion of this, uh, of the treatment of this disease, such that patients could participate. So it's not entirely a burden um, on the retina practices mm -hmm. and on the patients to go for their injections, really using a, an intervention as a, as a chronic treatment model. It's, it's, to me, it's, a, it's a, even then, and this was before it really became the challenge that it is today, um, I, I just didn't see that as a sustainable proposition and, and nor the best way for us to assure that patients get the treatment they need over their lifetime, because it was also very clear uh, that the data was accruing that most patients need continuous follow-up, if not continuous treatment, mm -hmm. maybe for the rest of their lives. And yep, that's clearly bearing out. So I'm curious, did you identify that sort of um, weak spot of the current uh, treatments? You know, the, the fact that the injections would be so onerous and you went after technology that would address that? Or did you first find the technology that became became PAN 908806 and no we started with uh, we started very specifically so Marty and I sat really at his kitchen table in uh, in in Dallas um, when he was down at at Alcon and had left Alcon because uh, Novartis had acquired Alcon at that point and they had installed their own you know management system there uh, so we're both refugees essentially from consolidation <laughs> in big farm in some ways <laughs> Uh, and, and, and we went through, you know, the common diseases and the uncommon diseases and, and tried to put together what would, what would be, what would be something that would have an, a potentially differentiated and important place and a new place for additional benefit in, you know, in treating some of these major diseases. And so we identified this before we had the molecule, and then we went out and searched for, for molecules, uh, essentially. And we knew that VEGF was the essential target. We knew that there were some other targets like PDGF and others. You know, the PDGF story, um, you know, has a connection with 
the legacy iTech company. The molecule mm-hmm. was originally there, but we knew that VEGF would be the mainstay. We really thought that VEGF would be the mainstay of treatment. And you might be adding things to it or tweaking it for a variety of reasons, you know, injection frequency and the like, but that you'd have to have anti-VEGF as part of your part of your treatment approach if you were going to treat neovascular AMD and likely also diabetic retinopathy. And so that was the goal. So how did you, you, you had the support from SV at the time. Uh, yeah. That must have gone a long way to, to, to turning the lights on. Uh, yeah. How did the company, though, get, get together and uh, how did you uh, build a broader sy- syndicate? You now have Third Rock as an investor and two great firms are behind you. What was that process like? Well, I mean, we, we, we had some additional, we had some other molecules also. Those have kind of dropped away either for, you know, lack of safety or efficacy or, you know, failure in the non-clinical pharmacology. In some cases, we couldn't get the deal, a potential licensor. Um, but um, we had a, a couple of these together. We had basically done the work, particularly on 90806, to show that it would work in animal models that have been predictive or at least associated with clinical success, you know, a laser CMB model, for example, and the oxygen-induced retinopathy model, which is, is kind of a surrogate for diabetic retinopathy. We, we knew we could dose topically, and it would work as well as an anti-VEGF antibody in the same models in the same animals. And so, you know, with that in hand, um, we proposed a Series A financing to uh, SV Life Sciences. That was our goal. And... Uh, we went out and tried to raise money from additional partners. Mm-hmm. And at that time, Third Rock was relatively new. Um, and I think we were probably the first investment they made outside of the Cambridge and Boston. But uh, we met with the, their co-founders and their, and their, um, and, and their broader um, corporate management team. And uh, we managed to run the gauntlet and they decided to come in as um, an investor in our Series A together with SV Life Sciences and get us off the ground and started. And so um, the goal at that point in time was to advance, you know, the the couple of other earlier stage assets we had to preclinical proof of concept and also importantly to move PAN 90806 toward a clinical development track and to do the work that was required to get us into the clinic. So um, that was in Really, we got to that started early in 2011 uh, was when that all started to come together. And so we hired, I think, judiciously, and our goal was actually to keep it small, to get people who had you know, breadth of experience and, and, and deep uh, domain expertise in clinical and, and in preclinical development and, uh, and, um, and the like, um, and to really use a, a big network that Marty and I shared of collaborators, you know, CROs, CMOs, um, manufacturing uh, organizations that would be kind of virtual company behind the scenes of, of a, a relatively experienced um, ophthalmology management organization. And so we're five people today. And yeah, I was going to say, I think you remember that from your presentation last year. You, you had five yeah, people. So, yeah, you know, it's remarkable. It's, it's, it's amazing what five people can do if you have experienced partners who feel part of the team, who have ownership with you together with uh, you on the program and, uh, you know, can, can drive that forward. And, and, you know, we, we treat them like we, in many ways, like we do our own people, um, even though they have, you know, other sponsors that they work with. Um, we hope that we can be kind of a preferred partner because of the way that, that we, that we use them, the way that they, uh, 
you know, feel engaged with us. That's, that was really part of the goal. Hey everyone, Tom here. I want to take a quick break from this conversation to invite you to go to OIS.net and sign up for OIS at AO. Few programming points about that. The breakfast breakout sessions are filling up. There's two left, so you want to hurry up, go to OIS.net, sign up as soon as possible. Also, we are uh, we're rich in uh, attendees. We've got over 300, well over 300 companies in attendance. Representatives from those companies will be on stage will be in the audience, all available for you to meet. So go to OIS.net. The number is going to keep going up. Add your name to the list. Go to OIS.net to sign up to attend OIS at AAO. It's happening again on November 9th in New Orleans. Now let's get back to this conversation. Do you count yourself as a a quote-unquote virtual company? Do we even use that term anymore, virtual company? Uh, or or are you, are you just a small operation in, in Pennsylvania? We're a small operation. Um, we basically get a lot of our technical work done through you know contracts, and uh, and we're very selective. And we've developed, I think, really good relationships now to where you know our collaboration partners, if you will, can answer questions the way that we would answer questions and can ask questions that they know would be important for us. So we have a tight team here and then we have, you know, a network of folks who are you know, committed to help us get this important job done. That's great. So the, the recent news, and we'll get into that shortly is uh, those $11 million. Yeah. Uh, was that a, was that a series B or an extension of a series B? And I guess my larger question is how that's, much, that's an extension of this. Yeah. That's how much have you raised totally from, from your investors so far? Are you, are you giving out that number? Yeah, we, we, we've raised in the range of $50 million from mm-hmm. our investors so far. Terrific. That's great. That's uh that's a, a, a milestone in, in yeah. this market. It's uh it's, I'm sure it's not easy out there. Uh, It's not easy. I mean, I think you have to have a story at the right stage. And I think, you know, the challenge we've had is it's taken us a little longer than we expected. And so, um, you know, I know our investors would have hoped that we had gotten there before $50 million went in. Mm -hmm. However, uh, we are at the point now um, where I think we have probably the greatest confidence we've had since we founded the company that a topical treatment for neovascular AMD diabetic retinopathy may actually be a feasible and, and not too far in the future opportunity. Uh, and, and so, you know, when we got to that stage and we went back to our founding investors and said, you know, we, we're at a point now where we should go back to the clinic and confirm the safety and improve safety and improved efficacy um, in, in a population of wet AMD patients, they said, yeah, we would definitely support that. So that was uh, the impetus behind uh, this recent finance. And we are seeing some enormous payouts for drop-related products. I'm thinking specifically about Encore, which is a different, it's pursuing sure. a different disease. But you know, is, do you see that as any kind of comp? I mean, if if this if you can prove this works well enough, do you and, I, and maybe not the t- the total number paid out, yeah. but can you point to that and yeah. say, you know, if we get there, that this certainly is a is a possible outcome? I believe in comps as sort of a a relative gauge of value, but I think every program has its own value drivers. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if anything, the additional you know couple of years we spent getting to the development stage, and we have clinical data as as we presented last year at OIS, uh, has amplified, I think, the potential need for alternative delivery approaches that with good efficacy and safety can help these patients see better for longer and make it a lifelong treatment that is really sustainable and amenable to uh, patients staying in treatment rather than 
people giving up because their family is uh, fatigued with bringing them to the to the practice, or um, they just they just don't see that you know after ten years in, and that, you know it's not not atypical now for people to getting to ten or twelve years in you know in chronic uh, injection treatments, um, and you know that's that's a long haul for people. Um, as yeah. Age. So so you know we we hear more and more from the marketplace, and I think you know when we first started, people looked at us a little bit sideways. But I think at this stage, it's become more and more obvious. Now we're moving into diabetic retinopathy and DME. These are younger patients. You know, vein occlusions can happen at a younger age. And if these patients need at least episodic mm-hmm. treatment for a lifetime, you know, we think there's a role for sending them home once they're controlled with a prescription for an eye drop that they take once a day and that they might um, be able to work together with their ophthalmologist to, you know, maintain their vision or even improve their vision perhaps over the course of that period. Well, let's get into uh, to pan 90806. I'm sorry. I'm better sure. I, I'm better with letters like OIS at AAO than I am with numbers apparently. <laughs> we heard your presentation at OIS at AAO last year. You gave an update on yes. uh, on the latest clinical results from uh, pan 90806. And uh, any news to report? I know you probably don't have anything uh, profoundly different, but uh, what's uh, what's gone on the past year? And and let's look ahead. What do you what do you hope to deliver uh, in the coming months or year when you with this money in hand? Yeah. Well, look, and just just to start with where we were um, at OIS here, we had we had uh, early data from a trial looking at the number of doses across patients with uh, treatment naive patients with wet AMD. We treated them for eight weeks with eye drops only, so they didn't get any injections at any point in time unless they began to get worse, in which case they were um, eligible for um, rescue therapy. And um, what we saw was that we had at the two lowest doses we treated, which are the two cohorts that we had fully enrolled, and the, and the reason for that I will get to in a minute, is that we had responses in about half of those patients that were um, consistent with anti-VEGF biological activity. Can't call it efficacy at this point because we're just looking at safety and, and a signal of anatomic and vision uh, outcome. But you know, the, the, the thing that we saw that we didn't expect is that at the higher doses, uh, we had a dose-related adverse event, which was, you know, punctate keratopathy. So this is kind of similar to what you see in dry eye patients. If you stain the cornea, you get some thinning of the retina in spots. Um, And, you know, we had seen this in the animals, but not at the doses that we are using in this trial. And so um, the two lowest cohorts were the two that we were able to complete, but the data was pretty compelling. And we have vetted that very carefully with some independent retina specialists taking them through not just the data, but every image of every patient um, on the OCT and the fluorescein angiogram and all the visions. And that was all also, you know, quantified in a mass fashion by the University of Wisconsin Reading Center. And at the two mg per mil dose, which was the highest dose we were able to get fully enrolled, you know, 50% of those patients had a response of 100 and uh, almost 115 microns of central retinal thinning. We also had patients at the one mg per mil dose that got a significant amount of vision gain uh, over eight weeks in about 40% of those patients. So, you know, we have a good, strong... Um, rationale for efficacy. It's just that we knew that we couldn't go into the clinic with, uh, with, with these doses as our clinical doses. So we were looking to improve the tolerability, particularly as a function of dose, so that we can dose range across a higher, uh, a broader dose range. And so 
part of what we did in parallel with completing the trial, because we, we started this effort you know, before the trial completed, because we had you know, observed that, that some of the patients at the higher doses were getting, and this wasn't every patient, but, and it was reversible when we stopped treatment, but we wanted to try to improve that. And we actually were able to do that in quite a significant way, mm-hmm. such that we expect to take a dose that's tenfold higher into the next trial. And we expect that the uh, corneal toxicology program profile will be as as good as the lowest dose we had, where we had no significant um, corneal, corneal events in, in the previous trial. You know, we expect that we can amplify the efficacy, demonstrate the safety, and increase both the response rate, that is the percentage of patients that respond significantly, and also the magnitude of the response. Um, and uh, we intend to do that in a, in a a trial that's designed to treat 60 patients for up to three months um, across three different uh, doses. So you know, that's pretty that's pretty exciting for us. I mean, we yeah. I, we 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 can't wait to get back to the clinic because we think you know this is um, this is our our chance to show what what the drug can do. How is this concept uh, being received from by the clinicians? Are, are you uh, are you having a lot of uh, centers interested in in serving as part of the trial? Yes. We are we're going to both U.S. and European sites. We're probably a little heavier in Europe. We didn't go to European sites last year, but we had you know contacted many of them. We've developed relationships with them over the last you know almost five or six years now, and uh, they are very excited about the prospects of being involved in the trial. And they are very supportive of the target profile that we're going for once daily treatment um, with an anti-VEGF eye drop for the maintenance of patients. Um, with wet AMD. Um, in the trial, we're not going for a maintenance setting because in three months, you're, you're not going to really be able to show that kind of robustly. But if we can show that the drug works on its own in treatment-naive patients who are typically not expected to get better, then we think that is compelling proof of concept, proof of principle that a topical eye drop can be used to treat these patients. And, you know, since we're dosing at a pretty broad dose range between 2 and 10 mg per mil, or 0.2% to 1% once a day, so a good spread in terms of that, um, we might also be able to show that there's a dose, dose response, which would be important for potential partners to, you know, be confident that what we're seeing is, you know, meaningful and follows typical pharmacological principles, which is if you increase the dose, you should increase the response and the magnitude of response. That's great. And this should be my final question. I'm just curious, do you, do you get any feedback from patients? I mean, this is, uh, this is gonna, this, if it pans out, would be, it would be a godsend for folks, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, we have, we have a couple of patients that, that we've gotten notes from that said, when are you bringing your eye drops back? <laughs> and our answer is, <laughs> If only we knew until we get there, we won't know. But uh, yes, and, and I think, um, I, you know, I think we have seen um, a number of patients that have had, you know, positive responses that uh, wish that they could have, you know, stayed on the eye drop, but we just didn't have the the regulatory approval to be able to enable them to do that. But uh, hopefully sometime in the near future, if we're successful in this next trial, that will that will be something that's not so far away. Fantastic, and that's why we do this thing. Absolutely, you know, it, it really is. Yeah, yep. to be able to, so, to affect that kind of change is, yeah. is important and powerful. My father-in-law had, had a vein occlusion a number of years ago, and he was well treated by a couple of retina specialist friends of mine. Um, he's a he's a snowbird. You know, he's in 
Pittsburgh for part of the year and he's in, um, he's in, he was at the time in Hilton head for the other part of the year. And I really witnessed between he and my, my mother-in-law, you know, the challenge it was to manage all of that while you're in two different locations, you know, even the decision to move and making appointments and look, people are still going to have to be able to be followed carefully, you know, even if they're on an eye drop. But I just really grew to appreciate the challenge that that represents. Um, they already spend a significant portion of their days going to the doctors. Um, and then when you put this on top of all of that, you know, it's it can be a little overwhelming to people who, you know, who might be 75 or 80 years of age and, uh, you know, wanting to maintain their independence. And so, you know, for for me and for us, for our team, I think that's the thing that really um, motivates us to be persistent and and to try to find a way to make this work. Well, that's a, a great way to uh, to end this because I think you're right. I think I think we we need to focus more on on the patients uh, that all of you folks are helping with uh, these great new treatments. So I thank you for taking a few minutes to uh, bring us up to speed. It. No, it's fun to talk about it, and uh, look forward to seeing you again and talking to you again in the future. All right. Thanks, Tom. And that is a wrap, Paul Chaney of Panoptica. Thanks for joining us on the OIS podcast. It's great having you here. We look forward to seeing you on stage at a future OIS. Thank you, OIS podcast listeners, for joining us. It's great to have you here. If you could do us a few favors podcast-wise, if you could please give us a ranking on iTunes or whatever device you're listening to, whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast as you rank the podcast. It makes it easier for new listeners to find. You could also just cut out that middleman and tell your friends about the OIS podcast if they also have an interest in innovation in ophthalmology. Finally, I'd love to hear from you directly. Shoot me an email, tom at healthag.com. That's the word health, followed by letters E-G-Y.com. Let me know what we're doing what right, what we're doing wrong, who we should be talking to, what we should be talking about. Or just say hello. And Healthy G, of course, is the producer of the OIS podcast and the OIS events. Speaking of OIS events, don't forget to register for the November 9th OIS at AAO. As I mentioned during the break, breakfast breakout sessions are selling out. Many have sold out, so you don't want to wait too long. It's going to be a great day. Go to OIS.net, register to attend, and we'll see you in New Orleans.